Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity together in study. And as we look at how calm and, and sunny and bright it is outside, it's hard to, to imagine how, how horrible things were just a few days ago. Uh, there are many people in this community who have been injured and damaged and lost loved ones and property. And we pray that you will uh, send your spirit to comfort those who have lost and, and uh, help, uh, help us gather together and work together as a community to, to rebuild and restore. But more than that, not just with a focus on earthly things, may this be an opportunity to, to cause people to step back and look at a greater reality and ask what's going on in this world and, and that we can uh, be helpful in, in ministering your love and your truth to to turn minds and hearts to you so the final message of mercy can lighten this world and we can see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number seven in the quarterly Garments of Grace, Clothing Imagery in the Bible. And the lesson this week is In the Shadow of His Wings. And as you think about the lesson title, using the imagery of an eagle's wings, what kind of things come to mind? Several questions popped into my mind. Because it uses the, the metaphor of how this is a feeling safe and secure under the wings of the, wings of the eagle. The first paragraph in the South Lesson doesn't imply a whole lot of safety. Yeah, the eagle is a live jet fighter armed with a hooked beak and razor-edged talons. It's loaded as a jet fighter, too. The eagle uh, is wind and wing, bone and sinew and blood. The eagle is a scavenger, fisher, and a thief. The eagle hurls itself from clouds toward water with the speed of a cyclonic storm. The eagle hobbles on, on a balled-up claw in its nest to keep from dicing up its young, and so forth. But then it goes on to talk about how we can feel safe and secure under the eagle's wing. And, and the question that came to my mind is, what does the eaglet, the little baby eagle, feel like in the shadow of the eagle's wing? What does the field mouse field like in the shadow of the eagle's wing yeah um hmm do some people relate to god like the eaglet feeling safe under his wing do some people relate to god like the field mouse feeling terrified and afraid and looking for a place to hide adam and eve ran and hid because they were afraid does the eagle have a different attitude toward the eaglet and the field mouse. Does God have a different attitude towards those who love him and those who don't? Does God love one and hate the other? Or does God want to protect one and destroy the other? Have some suggested such things? Yeah. Would God's attitude... Could there be a difference in attitude in this way, though? Um, not like the eagle towards the eaglet versus the field mouse. Not that type of difference. But how about um, a parent who has a healthy child and a child with leukemia? Would the parent's attitude towards the one with leukemia maybe have a greater heightened concern, a greater desire to intervene, uh, more attentions, treatments, restrictions, might there be an attitudinal difference, not of the love in the heart, but of the need of the child causing the parent to interact differently towards the child with leukemia? Yes. How about the parable of the lost sheep? The parable of the lost sheep. So even might there be more concern, apprehension, concern for the welfare of the child with leukemia than the other child? Yeah. More attention devoted. More attention devoted. Hmm. So I, I think about that, uh, think about 
maybe could that explain how sometimes we see differences in the way God interacts with people? Does he interact differently with people in, at different places and times in history? Is it because of he's the the eagle coming to destroy, or is it because he's the the loving parent wanting to heal? Well, Sunday's lesson, third paragraph says, at the pinnacle of greatness, David faces the fiercest battle. The war isn't waged on the bloody fields of Rabbah, but over the six inches of mental turf that lies behind David's frontal lobe. Really, I thought about that behind his frontal lobe. Huh. Actually, I thought it was in the frontal lobe myself, but, but I think that's what they meant. Yes, because behind the frontal lobe is the motor cortex. And anyway, um, Satan chooses his weapon well. What Goliath with his monstrous lance failed to do to David, a bathing woman seen from the king's rooftop does. Obviously, David forgets the lesson of his sling, how easily a giant is felled by one small stone, or in this case, one small glance. So, thoughts about this, the significance of this. The battle is fought in our mind. You all agree with this, right? The battle is fought with our mind. As we approach the end of Earth's history, the sinful Earth's history, the events leading to the second coming, the battle, again, is fought with with our minds. How does Satan, does Satan want us to focus our attention on the warfare going on here? So what, what weapons does he use to divert our attention away from the real battle? How does he get us to, to not see this? For some, it's world events. For example, things that happen in Israel. So the focus is what's going to happen to Israel that will is the future, so they focus on that. Yeah, I had a patient, actually, in the last two weeks, tell me she was at her church Bible study. She goes every week to the women's Bible study, and they were talking about the coming Antichrist. And we're talking about who could it be? Who could the Antichrist be? And I suggested the possibility, have you considered that the Antichrist is the Antichrist? It is Satan. Satan is the Antichrist, who comes as an angel of light, masquerading, pretending to be Christ. This is the Antichrist. It's not some human being born on It was like, whoa, I never thought of that. And it was like, wow, that makes sense. But it never, it was like a dawning light that it would actually be Satan impersonating Christ as the Antichrist, rather than they're looking for this human kind of thing coming along where the, well, the Antichrist has been born in, in you know, Iran, and he's now of age to take and assume. They're looking for this type of thing, as you suggest. Yeah. Other thoughts? Tornadoes. Tornadoes. Acts of God. Acts of God, yes. He'll use whatever he can use. Uh, everybody's going to react differently to different things, and he'll just use whatever he can use to divert our attention to whatever he wants to divert it to. Whatever we're, we're subject to be diverted to. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think that's right. Um, of course, the battle of Armageddon is often considered, as you were suggesting, a battle in the Middle East, fought in the Valley of Megiddo, and um, over planes and jets and nuclear weapons and so forth. But we know, Second Corinthians 10 through 5, the battle is fought in the mind. It's a worldwide battle over who you believe, who you trust, what methods you use. The lesson reports that David sinned with Bathsheba, he attempted to cover his sin in various ways. How did he attempt to cover his sin? By getting Uriah to sleep with his wife. By bringing her husband back. Okay, so bring Uriah home, Uriah have uh, relations with wife, and then, okay, everything's fine and good. How about having Uriah murdered? Another way to cover the sin, because then there won't be testimony that Uriah, did, Uriah didn't sleep with his wife, 
Okay, so he came home, he visited, and now there's a child. Um, do Why do we as human beings attempt to cover our sin? What motivates us to act in this way? Shame. Fear. Fear, shame. What else? Pride. Pride. Okay. Fear, shame, pride. Uh, what is the source of the fear? From where does such fear originate? As soon as Adam and Eve hid, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Mm-hmm. Where does this fear originate? We're afraid of what others are going to think about us because of what we've done. In, in the Garden of Eden? Well, not there, but in, in our situation, we are afraid of what our peers will say. Yeah, I think that's, a, and we're, I, I, that's an excellent point. I want to explore that just a moment, Lisa. You're exactly right. But did it originate with... Was Adam afraid of what Eve was going to think, and Eve was afraid of what Adam was going to think? It was within. Yes. Eternal separation. Did, did God do something? Was God behaving or acting in ways that incited this fear? No. No, no but he thought maybe God would get angry at him. Okay, so he thought, okay, we're getting closer now. He thought God might get angry at him. Okay, so where's the origin of this fear? Believing a lie. Believing a lie. Internal to oneself. Well, this is out of uh, Patriarchs and Prophets 3.29. It's talking about um, the children of Israel coming uh, when Moses comes down off the mountain. And listen, listen to this description, because there's, she says something about the origin of fear here. During the long time spent in communion with God, the face of Moses had reflected the glory of the divine presence, unknown to himself, his face shone with a dazzling light when he descended from the mountain. Aaron, as well as the people, shrank away from Moses. They were afraid to come near him, the scripture says. Where's this fear coming from? Why were they afraid? Seeing their confusion and terror, but ignorant of the cause, he urged them to come near. Now notice this. He held out to them the pledge of God's reconciliation and assured them of his restored favor. So from God's side of the thing, is there a... Is there a remember, we talk, remember we read some of those quotes last week? Is there wrath? Is there vengeance? Is there hostility? Is there a barrier in God's heart that is obstructing reconciliation here? No. No. Or inciting fear? No. So he held out the pledge of God's reconciliation and assured them of his restored favor. They perceived in his voice nothing but love and entreaty. So nothing but love and entreaties in his voice. So he's got a, a pleasant voice. He's not angry. He's not hostile. Uh, and at last one ventured to approach him, too odd to speak. He silently pointed to the countenance of Moses and then toward heaven. The great leader understood his meaning in their conscious guilt, feeling themselves under, still under the divine displeasure. Were they under the divine displeasure? Notice this. They were not under the divine displeasure. He'd already held out to them the, the promise of God's reconciliation and restored favor. But they felt under the divine displeasure. That's coming from internal to themselves. Okay? They could not endure the heavenly light, which had they been obedient to God, would have filled them with joy. Now here's the sentence. There is fear in guilt. There is fear in guilt. The soul that is free from sin will not wish to hide from the light of heaven. Fear in guilt. How do you think that comes? Where does the condemnation come from? When Adam and Eve sinned and ran and hid because they were afraid, and God approaches them gently, not to startle them. I mean, God knew where they were in the garden, right? And he could have popped up right behind the bush and said, Hey, Adam, what you doing over here? And it would have scared them, right? So he's, he calls out to them gently, Hey, Adam, where are you? They hid because I was Who told you that you were naked? The question is telling us what? Did, did God, God is saying by asking the question, you didn't hear me say you were naked, did you? 
You didn't hear me pointing out any defects to you, did you? Where did you get this from? So where was this condemnation arising? Within their own mind, their own judgment, their own conscience, their own heart. It was their own conviction of guilt, judging themselves. So we have judgment. God has given us these faculties. And when we do wrong, in our own minds, we condemn ourselves. We're not happy with ourselves. We're ashamed of ourselves. We, we beat ourselves in our own mind. Anybody ever done this? Is that because the brain was altered after being deceived or conscious choice to separate? No, I think the brain clearly was altered, and we didn't have peace with self, but we do have judgment. We do have a conscience, and our conscience and judgment were designed to function in harmony with God's law of love, and, and when we're out of harmony with it, it, we're not at peace with ourselves. So have any place to go except back on yourself. Yeah, yeah. So, so we use other defense mechanisms they talk about in psychology. We externalize, we project, we deny, we distort, we repress, we suppress. We have all these other things in an attempt to avoid the truth of the condition that we're in. So... What does fear then, this fear that we experience, what does it cause us to do? How do we act based on this fear? Protect ourselves. What are we afraid of in the aftermath of sin? Are we afraid of reprisal, embarrassment, rejection, punishment, some exaction, hostility, animosity? I mean, we're afraid of how we will be treated in the aftermath of sin. Isn't that what we're afraid of? And isn't okay. that true? I mean, is not the way people treat those who have done them wrong? Well, that's, this is a point that was raised earlier. Yeah, we're going to get to in in, in, in our society. We're, do we learn this because this is how we're treated by others? But I want to I want to try to yes. Or my mother was treated like that. <laughs> you know, right when I was one years old, two years old, did something wrong, boy, she came after me really with a stick. Okay, so are, in general, are we more afraid? Of the natural consequences of sin, are we more afraid of the natural consequences of sin or the perceived imposed consequences? Which are we more afraid of? So, a child is more afraid if they don't brush their teeth that their teeth will rot or that their parents will spank them. So they're more afraid of the perceived imposed consequence than they are of the natural consequences. What about a drug addict generally more afraid of the destroyed brain tissue that they're doing with these drugs or that they're going to go to prison? A child molester generally more afraid of the destruction to their character in acting in this way or that they're going to get caught and go to prison. A sinner generally more afraid of how sin damages and destroys them, their mind, their character, their heart, or the perceived idea that God will destroy them. Are you seeing a parallel here? Which is the real problem here with not brushing your teeth, ultimately? Isn't it that your teeth will rot, not that your parents will spank? Does, does, and so does this society, including Christianity, distort the reality of what actually happens in God's universe from sin and what we should be afraid of, the consequence of sin? Do they distort this reality? Was there any reason in fact in reality, in fact, for God to fear, for, excuse me, for Adam and Eve to fear God. And in fact, who came after them? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Who was coming after them to heal and restore and save them? Yes. Did Adam and Eve, did God have an attitude in any way to harm Adam and Eve? At Sinai that we read about a moment ago, did, is the children of Israel at Sinai have any reason in fact to be afraid of God? Or was he there to help and save and restore? Did Adam and Eve have any reason, in fact, 
to fear what sinfulness was doing to them. But did they? Notice that. The real fear is what sin does to the sinner, but it gets displaced onto God. Does Satan, and does Satan in fact work to get us to displace this consequence of what sin does and get us to blame God for this? Could the fear we experience of God all be based on lies, distortions, and misunderstandings? If you were to commit a sin, would you have fear? I know I do when, when things happen. If not fear of God, would you fear people finding out? Why? Why would you fear if you committed a sin, people finding out? You know, you, don't need, you know God now, you love God, you know if you committed a sin, he's gracious, he's there to help you. You're not afraid of God anymore. But do you still have fear and sin? Why, do we, why are we afraid of people finding out? We wouldn't. Yes. Because they're judgmental. They're judgmental, yes. I, I think it goes back a little bit further, though. When, when you think of the fear that Adam and Eve felt, uh, God had told them that in the day that they eat of this fruit, that death would come to the human race. Okay? They didn't know what that meant. They really were fearful of finding out what that meant. That's a hypothetical possibility. Um, there may be some elements of that. I, I don't hear that in their conversation with God. We ran and hid because we were afraid we were about to die. We ran and hid we are afraid because death is chasing us now. We ran and hid because we feel our bodies are deteriorating and we're sick and we're dying. We ran and hid because we were afraid because we were naked. Mm -hmm. No, I I don't necessarily disagree with you that what God said would would happen. Um, I don't know that they had yet dawning awareness yet, because as you said, they still don't know what death meant. So, yeah, I think the fear was related to the other elements here. We we would need to fear if members of our own church were to find out of some sin that we committed, would we? We would need to be afraid of that, would we? No. No member of the church would ever use knowledge of a historic act of sin to injure another member of the church, would they? Hmm. It's what what, uh, Lucille used to have to hear all the time. Lucy, you got some splaining to do, you know, and you... What are you going to say? I mean, when you when you know that you've done something wrong, you know you've disobeyed. It's work, you know, to come up with a with a lie or with whatever. So, do we have reasons based on our human experience to be afraid, and that 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 condition us or teach us to cover up our sin, to cover our sin? Hmm. Is there a difference between David's effort to cover his sin, we just talked about that, and God's covering of our sin? Is there a difference? In the Tuesday's lesson, jump to Tuesday's lesson, the memory verse says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Transgression is sin is covered. When you hear this word cover, what do you think? Sin is covered. If someone says to you, get under cover. What do you think? How do you hear the word cover in that situation? See, in the military, there's a difference between cover and concealment. Concealment means to hide, use camouflage, where you actually visually are not seen, you're hidden. That's concealment. But it's not cover. 
cover is actual protection so that, so you could be concealed with camouflage, but if a bullet comes, you still get hit because camouflage doesn't stop a bullet. Concealment is actually protection so that the bullet can't hit you. It's behind a concrete barrier. That's concealment. Cover. Excuse me, that, excuse me, that's cover. Thank you. Thank you. It's cover. Yeah, concealment is the, is the camouflage. Cover is the protection. If you're an infantryman and you want someone to cover you with a rifle, that's not concealment. Well, that's the same. Well, think, think of it. You're, you're an infantryman you're, and, you're, and your uh, uh, commander says, go, I'll cover you. He's not saying I'm going to conceal you. What he's saying is I'm going to protect you. Right? I've got you covered. I'm going to protect you. Same way insurance policies award their policies. We have coverage from an insurance co- company, yes. I think, I think we tend to want to use the word up, cover up, and that's concealment. Well, that's another. That, <laughs> well, no, that's another. That, exactly. This is why I'm asking you to think through the meaning of the words here. Um, because we use the cover. Our sins are covered. Are covered up. Yes, with the old Watergate. Cover up. You know, God's the great Watergate conspirator, right? The greatest cover up of the universe. He covers up sin. Is that it? That's what David was doing. This is the difference between human cover, we cover up. We try to hide. What about if somebody says, um, you know, I, I forgot to bring my wallet. We're out to dinner. I forgot to bring my wallet. And your friend says, that's okay. I'll cover it. Does that mean something different than a cover-up? Yes. Yeah. Uh, if someone says... Um, I'll pay your debt, which, which is a whole other... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pay your debt? Okay. How about I'm going to be... I'm, going to, I'm running late. Uh, the, 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 the tra- anybody have trouble with traffic on any of the streets this week? Do you get running late? I'm going to be in trouble with the boss, and then the co-worker says, don't worry, uh, I'll cover for you. But does it usually mean a liar? Does it mean, hey, don't worry, I'll take care of your job. I'll take care of, of what you've got to do. I'll, I'll, I'll pick up your slack. No, either way. Either way. Oh, so it could be, I'll lie. Hey, they're, they're there. They're here. Right they're downstairs. Or it could be, I'll cover for you. I'll take your job. I'll take your place. I'll answer the phones for you until you get there. Okay? So you see this word cover has a lot of nuance to it, doesn't it? When you think of the text... Uh, sins are forgiven. Whose transgressions? Well, it says uh, whose transgressions are forgiven. Whose sin is covered? What do you think? When a man attempts to cover his sin, he's attempting to conceal, hide, or cover up. True. Is that what God does? Cover it up? No. Or is, is God's covering just like the military a protection from sin rather than a concealment of sin? He's covering us from what sin would do to us if he didn't step in between us and the natural consequences of sin. Yes? I'm thinking back to a comment you made a few minutes ago in context of all of this, and you were talking about the child. Are they more afraid of the cavities? Or are they more afraid of, of the spanking? I think all of this and, and what we learn and how we instill this puts a whole new light and a whole different level of responsibility on parents and how they relate to their children in punishment and the crucial aspect that punishment in in child raising has in a child's development of their concept of God. And in the little nuances of how we do it, 
you know, because I said so, or a quick, I do believe in punishment, but I think we have to be really careful in eye contact and holding and loving that we're constantly instilling in that child, I am really doing this for you. This isn't an act of anger. Can I, can I, uh, can I massage your word there a little bit? Sure. <laughs> because you said I believe in punishment. How about if we replace that word with I believe in discipline? Yes. I, I do believe in discipline. I do believe in consequences. But we have to be so careful in how we package that in, because how we present the discipline. Discipline comes from the root word disciple, meaning right. to teach. Right. Punishment comes from the root word punitive, meaning to exact vengeance upon. So, yes, parents need to discipline. Do we need to punish? One is to control, one is to influence. Mm-hmm. One is to teach, grow, uh, and, and of course Christ discipled his disciples. Yeah, yeah, students, okay. Um, so, God's covering, is it a covering to conceal or covering to protect? I'm going to cover you, I've got you covered. To protect. And so God's covering is just the opposite. Do you notice in God's covering it's not a hiding or covering up, but in God's covering it's full exposure. Search me and see the wicked way, O Lord. Create in me a clean heart within me. God's covering, when he covers our sin, it requires full exposure. Just like if you have a sickness and you go to the doctor. You see, when we, when we have a sickness and we want to, we, we may cover up a blemish. We may cover up a sickness. We may try to hide some medical problem. But when you go to the doctor, it's un, undressed, guys. The robes come off, right? Full exposure, right? <laughs> Yep, you get it. full exposure for what purpose? To find defects, to laugh at you, to punish you, to, to find defects for the purpose of healing. healing and restoration. So God's covering is covering us with health, covering us with regeneration, covering us with a restored heart and mind spirit, covering us with a Christ-like character. This is a covering of regeneration, not a covering over of a sickness or a hiding. We want to put on makeup and cosmetics to cover over the defect. God wants to remove the defect altogether. So I received an email this week from a class member who came across a quotation, which was difficult to understand, uh, a quotation from one of the founders of our church, and made God sound like a harsh judge, and, and asked well, how we might think about this. And so um, they sent two paragraphs. I, I went back and looked at the source, and I've expanded it to a couple of more to get the bigger context. I'm going to read this, this to you, and then I want us to break it down, because this is one of these great places, and it has to do with covering, since we're talking about covering this week. Great places for us to to analyze, think, reason through the meaning of words. The Lord Jesus Christ has prepared a covering, the robe of his own righteousness. And by the way, the the place uh, you can find this, the reference, is Upward Look, page 378. The Lord Jesus Christ has prepared a covering, the robe of his own righteousness, that he will put on every repenting, believing soul who by faith will receive it. Said John, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Sin is transgression of the law. Christ died to make it possible for every man to have his sins taken away. A fig leaf apron will never cover our nakedness. Sin must be taken away, and the garment of Christ's righteousness must cover the transgressor of God's law. Then when we, when the Lord looks upon the believing sinner, he sees not the fig leaf leaves covering him, but Christ's own robe of righteousness, which is perfect obedience to the law of Jehovah. Man has hidden his nakedness, not under a covering of fig leaves, but under the robe of Christ's righteousness. Christ has made a sacrifice to satisfy the demands of justice. What a price for heaven to pay to ransom the transgressor of the law of God, uh, law of Jehovah. Yet that holy law could not be maintained with, 
any smaller price. In the place of the law being abolished to meet sinful man in his fallen condition, it had been, it has been maintained in all its sacred dignity. In his Son, God gave himself to save the, from eternal ruin all who would believe in him. Sin is disloyalty to God and is deserving of punishment. Fig leaves sown together have been employed since the days of Adam, yet the nakedness of the soul of the sinner is not covered. All the arguments pieced together by all who have interested themselves in this flimsy robe will come to naught. Sin is the transgression of the law. Christ was manifest in our world to take away transgression and sin and to substitute for the covering of fig leaves the pure robes of his righteousness. The law of God stands vindicated by the suffering and death of the only begotten Son of the infinite God. One more paragraph, and this is where it gets even more intense. The transgression of God's law is, in a single instance, in the smallest particular, is sin, and the non-execution of the penalty of that sin would be a crime in the divine administration. God is a judge, the avenger of justice, which is the habituation and foundation of his throne. He cannot dispense with his law. He cannot do away with it. It's its smallest item in order to meet or and pardon sin. The rectitude, justice, and moral excellence of the law must be maintained and vindicated before the heavenly universe and the world's unfallen. So warm your heart. <laughs> you find that one a tough one. Yeah, finds it a tough one. So how do we understand such language? By the way, it was written in 1897. For some people understand that when she was younger, she used more lit language like this and tended to use less of it after 1888 and later in her life. But this is 1897. So how do we understand such language? Is this literal? Is it metaphorical? Is it some other type of imagery? I think we should break it down and go through it and ask, first off, let's define the meaning of what's being described. This was Upward Look, page 378. Upward Look, page 378. Let's do it. Okay? Sin is what? Transgression of the law, which means what? Lawlessness. Lawlessness, okay. What law? The law of love. And so, if someone, so law of love, stepping outside the law, the law of love, if someone jumps off a building... Does the law of gravity act differently when they jump as if when they stayed on top of the building? Or is the law of gravity doing the same both places? Would this be an example of transgressing or stepping out of harmony with the law? How about if someone ties a plastic bag over their head? Will the law of respiration suddenly act differently toward them? Or is the law of respiration still the same? Now they have put themselves out of harmony. They've transgressed the law of respiration. Okay. What about the law of love? How do we understand it? Is it something arbitrary that God enacted and imposed and now enforces? Or is it the construction protocols upon which God built life to operate? Like the law of respiration. Which is it? The second one. So if one transgresses the protocols, like the law of respiration, but the protocols upon which life is built to run, if you transgress, step out of harmony with that, what's what happens? The wages of sin is... Death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. In the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Okay? Is this a threat? In the day you eat of the tree, I will, because I'm sovereign, I'm Lord, I have a law, I've imposed it, I will then be required by justice to execute you. 
Was that what it was said in Genesis? Or the day that you tie a plastic bag over your head and break the law of respiration, you will surely die. This is what's being described. What is justice then? Let's define justice. What is justice? Beautifully said, doing what is right, doing what is just. In the Greek, actually, the word for justice and righteousness are the exact same word. Just or right, the right thing, the just thing. So the question next is then, what determines the standard of what is right or just? What is the what determines that standard? The government, or in other words, we might say the law of the realm. Whatever realm we're in, the law of that realm determines the standard that justice is based upon, correct? And so what is the law of God's realm? The law of love. And so justice is always an expression of the law of the realm, which in this case is the law of love. So what would justice look like in that realm? Jesus Christ. Mercy, healing. This is what just now. Let's, with this in mind, let's look at this point. Let's go back to the paragraphs and break them down. This is upward look three seventy eight. Christ has made a sacrifice to satisfy the demands of justice. What was justice demanding? Healing. Perfect harmony with the law of love. Okay. In other words, what does the law of respiration demand if someone's to live? Breathing. That's what it demands. It demands breathing. You have to breathe, okay? So Christ has made a sacrifice to satisfy the demands of justice. What a price for heaven to pay to ransom the transgressors of the law of Jehovah. And we talked about ransom several weeks in a row, so um, I won't go through that again. But you understand what the ransom price was and what, how it was paid. Yet that holy law could not be maintained with any smaller price. Notice the words here. The holy law could not be maintained. Maintained, And she goes on to say again, in the place of the law being abolished to meet sinful man in his fallen condition, it has been maintained. Why has the law been maintained? Why did the law have to be maintained? Sustain life. To sustain life. Why does the law of respiration have to be maintained? You can't break a changed law of respiration to meet a COPD uh, suffering person in their disease state. You can't change that law to meet them in their suffocating state. You have to maintain the law of respiration for them to live. This is because this is the way life was built. So Christ died not to do away with the law, but to do away with the breaches in the law that are operating inside of the human condition so that humanity can put back in harmony with the law. The law is maintained because it's the protocol upon which life is built. Make sense? Okay, so justice demanded the law of love be maintained, that the law of love be restored into the humankind. The phrase, um, we just talked about that, okay? So, therefore, justice demanded that the sinner be restored to harmony with the law. Christ's death was the means whereby God could actually accomplish this outcome. So notice this statement out of Desire of Ages, page 762. Because when you get tough statements like this, I'm breaking it down for you, but there's a general principle that was already in my mind when I read it, and that is never read a statement in isolation. Bring to bear every other Bible and reference source you can bring to bear on it to give light as, it, as we blend them together because all the scripture has to harmonize in inspiration. So this is Desire of Ages 762. The law requires righteousness. Notice, what does the law require? A legal penalty. A death penalty. No, it requires righteousness. Why does the law require righteousness? Righteousness. What, but why does it require that? That's how things work. Because that's how life is based to operate. 
Why, why does, uh, again, why does uh, the human body require circulation? Because that's how it's built. It's built to run that way. And you can't, you can't have a human body without circulation. You take away circulation, you die. Okay, this is the way it was built to run. So the law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. What, are, what is God's holy law claiming? Righteousness. It's the expression. It basically, it is simply the code upon which all life is built to operate. That's all. It's the design protocol. But Christ, coming to earth as a man, lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Notice that. Remission of sins that are passed through what? A a legal payment to pay the penalty of that crime. No, through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine. So what's going on here? The law requires righteousness. Christ came to develop a character we couldn't develop, to make a human being back in harmony with God's design. He builds up the human character. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Christ. So what is justice here? It's restoration, healing, recreation, regeneration, putting the law of love. What's the new covenant? I will write my law where? On the hearts and minds. This is what justice looks like, making things the way God designed them to be. So what about this section of the upward look quote? Sin is disloyalty to God and is deserving of punishment. The fig leaves sown together have been employed since the days of Adam, yet the nakedness of the soul of the sinner is not covered. All arguments pieced together by all who have interested themselves in this flimsy robe will come to naught. Sin is the transgression of the law. Christ was manifest in our world to take away transgression and sin and to substitute for the covering of fig leaves the pure robes of his righteousness. Is sin disloyalty to God? Yes, it absolutely is. Why? God is love. Sin is violation of? Well, violation is another word of saying not being faithful to, right? If we're sinning, if we're acting selfish, we're no longer faithful to the law of love, are we? And not being faithful is disloyalty. Yeah, this, is, this is not a mystery here. It's absolutely. If we're selfish, we're not loyal to love. And God is love, so we're not loyal to him. Okay. What about this statement? Sin is deserving of punishment. You have trouble with that one? Sin is deserving of death. Thank you. If someone ties a plastic bag over their head, what does that act deserve? If someone jumps off the Empire State Building, what is deserved? If somebody takes a gun and shoots himself in the chest, what's deserved? Okay. So sin is deserving of death. Question. When someone jumps off the Empire State Building and it is deserving of death, but someone intervenes and puts down on the ground one of those inflatable, you know, those things they use in the in emergency departments, they'll inflate those big old cushions that you land on, and they and they inflate one of those giant cushions, and the person lands on this giant cushion and doesn't die. Does that mean their act was less? Sometimes they'll do this. People with mental illness and stuff or suicidal will be on a building. They're several stories up, and while they're talk, trying to talk to them, the emergency department will come and run, and they'll flate that thing down below them. You've seen this, right? 
Okay? And then the person still jumps and they hit that thing and they don't die. Are they less deserving of death because the fire department was there? They're still deserving, aren't they? That act deserves to die. But what happened? Yes. Can we substitute natural consequence versus deserving? Yes. It all has to do with how you understand deserving. Deserving brings out, okay, you did it, so you deserve for me to do this to you. Right. And this is the whole, how do you hear the words? Yes. I think in the, in the reality of God's kingdom, uh, it is the natural consequence. These acts, when you violate the law upon which life is built, the natural result, consequence, what it deserves is death. But what does it get because of God's grace is the question, you see. What it deserves. And see, when we hear this deserving, we often hear, well, God is the, the great you know, judge in the sky, so he's going to impose a penalty. You're going to get your just dues because you deserve it. Yes. It also says sin. It doesn't say sinner. Right. Sin is disloyalty to God and is deserving of punishment. Exactly right. Yes. But what about the word punishment? Because you've changed it deserving of death. Punishment implies something other than a natural consequence. Does it? Does it? Retributive. Punishment comes from retribution. Punitive. Is that inherent or is it imposed? Yeah. Is the question. Yes, the question is the punishment inherent or is it imposed? So it does, again, how you're using the word punishment. Yes, I did say that earlier because that's I was talking in that context of a relationship to a parent intervening in the life of a child. In that, in that context, that is an imposed punishment. So that would be, uh, and that would be retributive or retributive, and that would be, in, I mean, this is what society does. You know, we want to punish people and make them pay. That's imposed. Punishment can also be inherent in the act itself. A smoker who smoke cigarettes will be punished by that act. The act itself has its punishment. And so it depends on, and so in the question over here, she was talking about parents and their kids, and that's why I massage that to parents want to discipline their kids. Loving parents don't want to punish their kids, do they? No. But... Which is a greater punishment, spanking for not brushing your teeth or allowing the child's teeth rot out. True. No, that's right. Really the important thing is how much influence, how much option, opportunity, and just the way we're thinking in our own mind that we have to convey that to our children. So the question, must every sin be punished? <laughs> no. Yes. As I understand it, the rebellion in heaven originated over the idea that Satan wanted the power of creation. So he is challenging... That's not my understanding. Well, wait a minute. Okay, go ahead. He's challenging the right that God has as creator to say, this is where the line is. This is where punishment is natural, and this is where punishment is what I said it is. And if we can't accept the fact that God says at a certain point, that punishment, whether it's natural or whether it's imposed, is real, then what we're doing is giving Satan the right to say that you can move this line wherever you want based on which jurisdiction it is. This world is my jurisdiction until, as we understand it as Christians, Christ died and showed him, you know, took it away from him, essentially. But 
he's saying this is my jurisdiction and these are my rules. So yeah, I, did, I don't. I, I didn't quite see it that way in heaven that Satan was originally uh, wanting the power of creation, that he was wanting the authority and position of Christ to be the one most adored, admired, and loved, and he wanted to displace Christ in the hearts and minds of the uh, intelligent beings with himself to be the one that they adored and appreciated the most, and the 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 um, and he wanted Christ's position in heaven, and he used the distinction that God. Uh, that that actually exists in reality between Christ and Lucifer as an attack on God's uh, character, alleging God was arbitrary and preferring Christ in the creation council meetings, not because he primarily wanted the power of creation, which I'm sure he would have liked, but primarily because he wanted the position and authority that Christ held. Yes? He has a question. Uh, does every sin need to be punished? And wasn't Satan the one that said... Every sin needs to be punished. Desire of Ages, I think it's 762, is it? 762. Desire of Ages, every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. Those are Satan's words, according to Ellen White in Desire of Ages 762. So, yes, does every sin have to be punished? Well, Romans chapter 325 says, Paul, this is quote, God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. But every sin does have to be punished. Every time you jump off of the Empire State Building, you are going to die without intervention. So, so every sin doesn't get punished because there are interventions. Right. So every sin does not get meet its punishment. Right. And, and, and let's, let's press this on a little further. Um, so we understand that sin is deserving of punishment, correct? Sin is deserving of punishment. If there's no intervention, yes. Right. But, but that's what it deserves. Yes. Okay. Right. Just like jumping off this Empire State, or just jumping off a building is deserving of pain and suffering and possibly death, depending on how high you were. That's what it deserves if you decide to jump off a building. But if someone with love and grace is able to intervene before you hit the bottom and put that cushion in there, you can avert the punishment. The punishment can be averted. And isn't that what God did through Christ? He sent Christ to avert the punishment of sin. Now, penal substitution would teach that, no, punishment wasn't averted. That Christ took the punishment. Yes. Is, is poor judgment uh, uh, a reason for the ultimate penalty of sin? We now we just had these terrible storms. You were told to get into a safe place, but you decided, well, I'm I'm not going to do it, and for whatever reason, and and you were killed because he asked, you, is it? You didn't make good judgment call. He asked if poor judgment is a reason for the ultimate penalty of sin. What kind of judgment did Eve exercise when she was tempted at the tree? Did it result in the ultimate penalty without intervention from Christ? Yes, so the answer is yes. Poor judgment results in the ultimate penalty. Um, When you understand God's laws as the design protocols, they are unyielding and they're unbending. If if you use poor judgment uh, and... Pick pick one. Tie a plastic bag over your head. uh, Decide to go diving in a cave. (laughs) You know, cave diving... Bad judgment, guys. Okay, you go diving in a cave and you and you stir up the silt and you get turned around and you don't know which way this happens. People, cave divers drown all the time. Why? Because they have limited air supply and they get lost. Poor judgment. Is, is does the law of respiration bend itself to meet that person in their poor judgment? 
No, there has to be someone intervening to save them from themselves and their circumstance and their situation. And if somebody knows what's happened and a rescuer goes in to rescue them, that's us. We're in this terrible circumstance on earth. God has sent Christ as our rescuer to rescue us. Well, yeah. Both Adam and Eve's poor judgment had a foundation in distrust. Yes. They believe for a lie or distrust. Of right. Exactly right. They believe the lie and it was exactly right. So... Yes. Can I just talk a minute about the, could we talk a minute about the uh, flood, which appears to be one of God's great acts of punishment and judgment on people. You know, it, it, it strikes me that it said the Lord was grieved that he'd made man on earth and his heart, his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth. So he asked Noah to build an ark. And invited everybody to get on board, and I'm sure he would have built a fleet of arts, arcs if he knew lots of people would have accepted that invitation. So even in God's act of removing all living things from the earth, he provided a way of escape. He provided that cushion, but they just wouldn't do it. Okay. Yeah, that's poor judgment. But people look on the on this flood as an example. And an end-of-time example. Yeah, I'm debating whether I want to pick that thread up or just let it go this time. <laughs> I think I'm just going to let that go and just suggest that there's multiple other ways to explain that whole story than the assumptions that were just made. Um, but we don't have time for that today. Um, but, no, you're exactly right. I can tell you the story of the flood is not an example of God punishing sinners for sin. I'll just say that much. It's not an example of God punishing sinners for sin. And I like the fact that you emphasized the... Um, the fact that uh, when he warned about a flood coming, he'd provide warning and he'd provide an avenue of escape. That's what we should notice. Um, what happens is people instead emphasize the other, that God is coming to punish and destroy. No, God was coming with warning and opportunity of escape. We need to understand differently what, what was bringing the flood, but we don't have time to go into that at the moment. So, but, um, so Christ was manifested to uh, according to this, so sin is deserving of punishment, but just like jumping off the empire's uh, a building is deserving of pain unless someone intervenes and the punishment can be averted, Christ was manifested to, and according to the quote we just read, the quote says he was manifested to, um, Christ was made manifest in our world to take away transgression and sin. He was manifest to take away transgression and sin. Think that through. What is transgression and sin? Lawlessness. lawlessness. Where, where does lawlessness operate? In, in textbooks, in recorded instruments, in the heaven, record, heavenly record books? Is that where sin occurs? Or does it occur in living beings and hearts and minds? So Christ came to take away transgression and sin from where? Yes. It goes back to, in the lesson quarterly this week, also uh, made, I think, an error in the sense that they equated sin with acts. Sin is a condition and a direction. We, we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Yeah. If you're talking about acts, then that changes the whole complexion and, and the discussion. You know, if you're truly talking about sin, sin, yes, needs to be go, taken care of and, and gone away or, or righteousness, etc. But that's because it's a different direction. It's not acts. So I like what you're saying. Right now, let's follow up on that. So taking away transgression, does it mean 
taking away acts. So if it means that, is, is he taking away sin and transgression from history so that he came to change historical facts? So he took away the fact that David had an affair with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. And so therefore he never, David never Having taken this act and history away, David never marries Bathsheba, Solomon is never born, and therefore the whole lineage of Christ never happens, and Christ is never born. Because he takes it away. Is that what it means to take away sin, to take away history? No, it's taking away sin is not taking away acts. It's excellent. That's exactly right. Taking away sin is taking away a condition of heart and mind, a principle, a mode of operating that we operate upon, that fear and selfishness-based stuff. So Christ takes sin or transgression away from, would you say, it's reasonable to say, he takes it away from our hearts and minds, our characters. This is where he takes it away. And this is what it says in Christ Object Lessons, Christ Object Lessons page 311, still talking about that robe, because this whole um, quote that we started with that's so confusing is talking about that robe. It says, this robe woven in, woven in the loom of heaven has not one thread of human devising. Christ in his humanity wrought out a perfect character, and this character he offers to impart to us all. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart, the will is merged with his will, the mind becomes one with his mind, the thoughts are brought into captivity to him, we live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Notice the covering that Christ provides is not a covering up, it's a protection, a transformation, a healing, a transformation, a restoration. We are covered because we're like him. That's what it means. So, keep moving on with the final paragraph in that quotation, the hardest one of all. Uh, the transgression of God's law, the transgression of God's law in a single instance, in the smallest particular is sin. The non-execution of the penalty of that sin would be a crime in the divine administration. God is a judge, the avenger of justice, which is the habituation and the foundation of his throne. He cannot dispense with his law. He cannot do away with with its smallest item in order to meet and pardon sin. Anybody want to explain that one to me? I see that. Who would be harmed if God allowed sin to uh, go to its natural conclusion? We would be harmed. Or if he would allow um, us to... Uh, to, to continue breaking the laws, we would be harmed by it. His creation would be harmed by that. His, if, yeah, did you all hear that? If we continued in transgression of law, that his creation is destroyed by that process. What do you think that means? The non-execution of the penalty of sin would be a crime in the divine administration. That means he would be changing the laws. Exactly. Think this through. When... Yeah, it would be changing his nature. He wouldn't be the God we know. The universe would, uh, to, to not, this would mean basically changing not only who God is, but changing the entire construction of the universe so everything we know would cease to exist. And this is the issue of whether change needs to take place in God or change needs to take place in us. That's right, yes. If he did that, then Satan would be correct. That's exactly right, too. If he, had, if he made some change there. That's exactly right. So the non-execution of the penalty would be a crime in the administration would be the same as saying um, somehow if we could uh, change, uh, attempt to... Uh, I, I, the analogies are escaping me here. Change, somebody has uh, got a respiratory disease and, and we uh, uh, try to say, okay, you can breathe without... We put them on the moon and say, you won't have this problem uh, with your pneumonia uh, once you're on the moon. Okay? Well, you won't have a problem with pneumonia on the moon. Because we've just, right? Yeah, because we're outside completely now of the protocol and design for life. There's no breathing there. So if there's no breathing, there's no problem with pneumonia. Okay? Um, 
So what would the what would non-execution of the penalty of sin mean? What what is the result of transgression of the law upon which life is built to operate? The transgression of the law upon which life is built to operate is death, non-life. Exactly right. And what did God tell Adam and Eve would happen in the day they transgressed that law? You will die. And Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God means what? Christ took upon himself our infirmities, it says in, in the scripture. He took our iniquities upon himself. Christ united his divinity with our humanity, our defective, infirmed humanity, in order to destroy the carnal nature, develop a perfect character, which he offers to all of us. Thus, in Christ, at the cross, he destroyed the infection of sin, destroyed the carnal nature, and perfectly restored the law of love in humanity through his choices in the exercise of his human brain, not his divine brain. Thus he rose again on the third day. If this was a legal courtroom type of penalty, rather than a fixing of the what was broken in mankind type of situation, if that was the case, then the penalty for sin has yet to be paid. And this is what the penal substitution model deny, distort, and get angry and hostile over. Because the penalty, if you want to look at it, for sin is what kind of death? Asleep in the grave until the resurrection? An eternal non-existent. And if this is truly substitutionary legal, then Christ should still be dead in the grave. Because there is no resurrection. But what Christ did is he destroyed the carnal nature. He took upon himself, he was that unique being um, who united his divinity with our humanity, took upon himself a, a nature like ours, and when he died at the cross, he destroyed that nature. And that nature, he assumed, never rose again from the grave. But he, whose character was pure, whose character was not tainted by that nature, he rose with the humanity cleansed from that nature. So he rises again, but that nature is permanently destroyed in the grave. Does that make sense? Yeah. Character now in harmony with the laws that govern life. Exactly. And that's why the grave couldn't hold him. (laughs) This is what life is built on. The grave could not hold him. Yeah. So when it says, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we will be changed, is that the moment that our character... Well, I know that we're building a character like Jesus here on earth, but are we? have we lost then the, the character that we were born with at that no, moment? No, no, no. So you're, 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 you're confusing character and nature. Character, we will have the Christ-like character before he comes. It says in Revelation chapter 12, those who are ready for translation... These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. What's that, what's that describing? Literally, it's describing people who aren't trying to save themselves. People who love others more than self, because only love casts out fear. So before Christ comes, those people have had a character change where they're not interested in self-survival anymore. Yet, they have a nature which can still be tempted to act in self-interest. So they're not delivered from the nature, but they have a developed character where they're willing to, to give self in, 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 rather than act on that nature. At the coming of Christ, at the, at the, when this mortal puts an immortality, that's when we get rid of the nature and are never subjected to those temptations again. Right. So in other words, at that point in time, we're put in the position that Christ was, that Christ when lived he in, because he had, perfect, he had a perfect At what character. point in time? We're put in a... 
That glorification. At glorification, we have a perfect character and a perfect nature. That's right. But before then, we can come to the same point that Christ did. We can have a perfect character, but not a perfect. A nature. perfect character by the indwelling Spirit reproducing the character within us, not by anything that we're doing. I don't want to put in this. We're not working. We're not earning. We're receiving a gift, a restoration. We're being healed, regenerated, recreated through God's grace in our heart. Yes, but not that we can work really, really, really hard and make this for ourselves. No, no, no. Yeah, we all agree on that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then what does it mean about the judge? It says he, God is a judge. You can hear that in two ways. Do physicians make judgments on a daily basis? Now, we don't typically associate in our, in our culture physicians as judges. We call them diagnosticians. But what is a diagnosis but a judgment? That's all it is. You've assessed the situation and you've made a judgment, a diagnosis. And then with that diagnosis, you also make multiple subsequent judgments about interventions to heal and restore. God is judging the condition of each one of us. There's no question about it. But as a, as a judicial act that he then acts as the imposer of penalties or as a diagnostician, he judges the sheep and the goats. You're healed. And what is it that determines his judgments? The condition of the ones he's looking at. We either have Christ-likeness reproduced within, or we don't. And he looks at us and sees us for what we are. That's all it means. We make judgments all the time. We go through the grocery store and decide, yeah, this is good, this isn't. Or with our children, we judge uh, whether they should do that activity or go to somebody's house or not. That does, and we make wise decisions based on that judgment. Judgment itself isn't evil. It's right. what we do with that judgment. That and, in, and, and we are told we will judge angels. In other words, we will sit and we will look at the condition of the fallen and we will see and make judgment. Yep, they are terminal. They are beyond healing. Yep, there is no amount of grace, no amount of love, no amount of truth, no amount of time, no amount of patience, no amount of working of the Spirit. There is nothing left that God has in his arsenal that can cure these people. We will make that judgment. That's the judgment we make when we look. We don't make a judgment of... Okay, you forgot to have the blood applied to your account, so you get punished. Now, let's see, how long do you deserve to be punished? Well, let's see, what I vote for three days in the fire. Uh, do I have a second? <laughs> and no, I, uh, second, do we have a discussion on that? Well, three days is appropriate, but, but I think they need three and a half days. You know, there's some people that teach that in heaven during the thousand years, the righteous sit in committees doing this very discussion, looking at the sins and making judgments on how long people need to suffer. That is not what's going to happen, folks. We make judgments looking at the condition, and we judge, wow, there's nothing more God could have done to save these people. Nothing more. Okay, and then the avenger of justice. The avenger of justice. What does that mean? Well, again, what is justice? Doing what's right. What's right. And, and in God's universe, it looks like? Love. So the avenger of love. Now, that's what the avenger of love. What is that thing? Okay. Well, can we let the Bible give us some guidance here? And let's, let's, let's look at these two passages and see what you think. What vengeance looks like in God's kingdom. He's the avenger of love. This is Isaiah 1, 24 and 25. And then we're going to look at Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. Isaiah 1, 24 through 25. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. This is what it says. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I hope you got a chill just then. What is he going to avenge himself on? And if you're not sure, here's the next one. 
This is out of Isaiah 61, and you'll notice uh, someone very important to us all quoted this passage. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. I hope you're getting some chills here, guys. The vengeance of love, God takes vengeance on sin by destroying sin in the sinner. That's his vengeance. He is the avenger of justice in that he comes and destroys in your heart and mind fear and selfishness and sin and character defects. That's what avenger of justice means. Him. Yes. And vengeance is mine, says saith the Lord, because he is the only one that can do it. Exactly, vengeance is mine. He's the only one that can do this. And but this is why Paul says of those who are, are you know doing bad stuff to you that you should treat them with kindness and you will keep burning coals on their head, you see? Same thing. practice love. We give. We we, we we love those who are enemies. And this is what it means. So um, we just now got through that and we're already past our time, but I wanted to finish that up. Isn't that beautiful? And so this passage, it was a difficult passage. And so in the closing on this passage, why would Ellen White choose language like this to even express these ideas that are so difficult? Why? Doesn't God sometimes, even in the scriptures, take claim for things when he allows us to just reap the natural results of our... No question that God in the scriptures does take... Uh, the, the, the scriptures describe him as doing things he permits. Uh, in the scriptures, we know that Saul fell on a sword and committed suicide, but in one place in the Chronicles, it says that God puts all to death for his disobedience. So yes, there's many places like that, no question. But my understanding as to why this language appears this way from people who are inspired of God is that um, God wants to reach every person from every walk of life, from every kindred, nation, tribe, people. And people come are coming from different backgrounds, different experiences, different upbringings, different homes, different belief systems, different attitudes, and different vocabularies, uh, different understandings, and some language won't resonate with some people. Some people will never, some people, believe it or not, will not resonate where they are today with the language that we resonate with in this class. And so some people need this harsh language in order to them feel that God is a safe God. If they don't have a, a language that makes it sound this way, they feel that God is an unfair and capricious God, and therefore they need a God who will take care of business because somebody has to be in charge to take care of business. They yet haven't understood the reality of God's kingdom and how it runs on the laws that he's designed it upon. They need an individual to be in charge to make it happen yet. And I think this has to do with developmental uh, and time and space and so forth. So I think this language is, is legitimate and it has a place. And it will be no different than this example I give. Imagine that you have two sons. One is the age of five and the other is the age of 25. And you're going to explain the plan of salvation to them both. Do you use the same language for both? Can your five-year-old understand the same language? Or you're going to explain to both of them the importance of brushing your teeth, or to both of them the importance of of why we don't do certain things on Sabbath, or why we do do certain things on Sabbath. I mean, do you use the same language and explanation to your 25-year-old and your five-year-old? 
Now, this is what God is dealing with. And you'll find in Hebrews chapter 5, he says, for the, you should be, you, know, you guys are still infants on spiritual milk. You should be on meat by this time. Uh, those on, on, in, on milk, they're not acquainted with righteousness. And then he goes on to describe what they're focused on. They're focused on acts that lead, the repentance from acts that lead to death. As you said earlier, they're focused on behaviors. They're focused on the rules. That's the, that's the milk. The spiritual righteousness is what we're talking about in here, the principles of God's nature, character, kingdom, what he's achieving in us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us this opportunity to study and know you more fully. We pray that your spirit be poured upon us. Let our minds be enlightened. Let us, let us come to know you as you truly are and appreciate your laws. Let them be written upon our hearts and minds. Make us lights in this world that we can go out and teach others about your kingdom, we pray. Give us patience to work with those who, who in sincerity are opposing us, um, but let us not be um, derailed from our mission of taking this message about you to the world. We again pray for the families and the communities that have been devastated by these storms, that you will not only minister their, their immediate temporal needs, but, but your spirit will begin to, to enlighten their minds and, and turn their hearts to an eternal reality. They can find the truth about you, we pray in your holy name. Amen.